Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. I like superheroes. All kinds of superheroes. Spider-Man. He's the best. Iron Man, Superman, Captain America. There's all kinds of superheroes. And if you like superheroes now, it's a kind of a fun time. Because there are three, four superhero movies every year coming out. It's like superhero inundation. Why do I like superheroes? Well, I enjoy watching their stories because there's something about watching somebody fight against the odds. Remarkable people doing remarkable things, standing up for what's right, rescuing people, sacrificing themselves for the sake of others, all these types of things. But the more that I think about it, even though I enjoy superheroes, I think I enjoy hearing the true stories of ordinary heroes even more. People with no superpowers, yet they still do incredible things. Whether that's hiding Jews in Germany during World War II, Or that's somebody like William Wilberforce fighting for years for the abolition of slavery. Or many people who did whatever it took to rescue the 33 miners who were trapped for 69 days in Chile in 2010, if you remember that. 69 days they were trapped. Ordinary people doing incredible things. These stories, these people, they inspire me. And I find that they inspire me more than the superheroes do because I can actually relate to them. They're just, they're just people. That's just a person, and I'm a person. Well, in the first few verses of Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to a person. We're introduced to a man named Stephen. One of the seven men chosen to relieve the twelve apostles in the task of distributing aid to the widows that were in the Jerusalem church. He was an ordinary guy. He was a newly appointed deacon in the church. And today we're going to zoom in on this guy, and we're going to see how he was used by God in pretty incredible ways. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, to Acts 7, verse 60, Luke describes the remarkable Christ-like life and ministry of Stephen, whose martyrdom actually advanced the mission of God. So let's begin by looking at his life and his ministry, and that's going to then set the stage for the challenge that he presents for each one of us today. So we're going to go through a number of things fairly quickly about Stephen. Who was this guy? So right off the bat, he was empowered like Jesus. Acts 6, 8 says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So think about Jesus, his life, his earthly ministry. He did miracles all the time, healing all sorts of people, right? The 12 apostles then, after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they started doing signs and wonders like Jesus. And now Stephen, a deacon in the church, is doing signs and wonders. Stephen is actually the first person in the church, other than the 12 apostles, to be reported doing miraculous works. He was empowered like Jesus. But also, Stephen spoke with unanswerable wisdom like Jesus. He spoke with unanswerable wisdom. As we heard, um, verses 9 and 10, all these people were in the synagogues and it says they were disputing with Stephen. But verse 10, it says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Think back to Jesus. Multiple times, whether it's with an individual or to a whole crowd of people or to religious rulers, 
He had these wise words, these responses that confounded people. People could not contradict. And they just stood up. Now, you know, and hmm, Jesus also said to his disciples, you are going to get that same power. I'm going to give that ability to you. You're going to come before people and you're not going to know what to say, but don't worry about it. You'll be given words to say in the moment. In Luke uh, 21, 15, he said that. So now Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, he spoke in such a way that his opponents couldn't dispute him. It says that they couldn't. Not bad for an ordinary guy. A guy who's, who's one of his primary responsibilities was to make sure that the widows were looked after. Here he is speaking with unanswerable wisdom to his opponents. Next, we see that Stephen endured a trial like Jesus. He endured a trial like Jesus. Acts 6, 11 to 15 says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, if you remember, if you're familiar with the account of, of Jesus, his own trial before his crucifixion, there's many parallels in Acts 6 here. Both of them were charged with blasphemy. Both of them had accusations brought forth from false witnesses because they actually couldn't find a legitimate charge against them. Both of them were before the council. And now after the charges were laid, Stephen has this opportunity to answer. He has this opportunity to give a response. Now Jesus, this is where he's a little bit different. Jesus didn't give a very lengthy response. Stephen, he gives a very long speech. But he begins here to preach the Old Testament like Jesus did. He preached the Old Testament like Jesus. Jesus, in his ministry, he often was quoting the Old Testament. You've heard this say, I'm telling you about this. Especially when he was dealing with the religious leaders. Right? Their job was not only to, to know and do the law and the words of God, but then to teach other people to do it. And Jesus came after him all the time. Hey, you guys aren't doing it. He preached through the Old Testament. So now you have in Acts 7, verse 1 to 53, the longest speech. I'm not going to read all of it. But in it, Stephen recounts the history of Israel from God choosing Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph going into Egypt and then, and then all, the, all Israel being in Egypt and then them growing and then being enslaved and God raising up Moses, delivering them out of Egypt and then they finally have their own promised land and then they build the tabernacle and then they establish themselves even more and they build a temple and Stephen, then he switches to say, hey, hey, you know what, God's actually, he doesn't live inside, he's not contained inside buildings that we can build, he's much bigger than that. And then he goes on, he talks about how Israel has historically always resisted the Holy Spirit. And they've mistreated the prophets all along. And they don't actually keep the commands of the law. And they kill Jesus, who was the Messiah, the righteous one. His speech kind of hits him right between the eyes. He confronted the leaders. Called out the leaders. And angered the leaders. And his speech, notice it's his speech that leads to him being killed. Not the miracles he did. It's his speech which led him to suffer and die like Jesus. Stephen suffered and died like Jesus. Acts 7, 54 to 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That, that was it. Like That was the last straw for them. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. That's them going like this. Ah, la, 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 la. We don't want to hear it. Seriously, they put their fingers in their ears and cried out, No! Because they viewed that as blasphemy. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So he angered the leaders. But then he goes one step further and he says, I see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God in heaven right now. That's the final straw. That's blasphemy. You're worthy of death. And so... While Jesus was beaten with rods, whipped, and then nailed to a cross, Stephen was hit with a barrage of rocks until he died. And Stephen's dying words echoed Jesus' words. Right? Jesus is hanging on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus is on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen says, Lord... Don't hold this sin against them. Forgive them. So many similarities, so many parallels. Stephen was a witness for Jesus to the very end. Cost him his life. He was a martyr. Now the word martyr actually comes from the Greek word for witness. Stephen was the first ultimate witness, you could say, of the early church. But he wouldn't be the last. Many have been martyred. For believing in Jesus. Now I want to take you back to the beginning of Acts chapter 6. Back to verse 5 and back to verse 8. Where we get this description of Stephen. Verse 5, when they were selecting the people who would be these deacons. It said, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then back to verse 8, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power. So the description that we get of who Stephen was. Is that he was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of grace, and he was full of power. Can you imagine what your life would be like, what our lives would be like if that described us? What our church would be like, what our city would be like if we became men and women of God, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. It's possible. Stephen was an ordinary person. I want us to, to look at these four things and talk about them a little bit more. Let's start with this idea of being full of faith, where it says that he's full of faith in Acts 6-5. Now, this isn't necessarily some kind of quantifiable amount of faith, like um, I've got this faith tank, and today it's only 10% full, and yesterday it was 35% full, or, or something like that. No, it's, it's a way of describing the complete trust in God that characterized Stephen's life. Full of faith. He completely, fully believe the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. He believed that he was the Son of God. He believed that he died on the cross. He believed that he rose again. He believed that he offered forgiveness. He believed that he offered eternal life. He believed that he was the Messiah, the chosen one. And so he, this trust, this belief in Jesus completely shaped his life. That's what it means to be full of faith. And this is what we're actually called to. We're called to be people who are full of faith. To trust God with every aspect of our lives, our, our finances, our family, our, our, our career pursuits, 
education, our health, our future, both our near future and eternal future. This is what Stephen did. And he ended up dying for it. He ended up being a martyr. Maybe you've heard the phrase, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What that means is throughout history, as persecution has increased and intensified, even resulting in people dying because they believe in Jesus, it actually didn't shrink the church. Rather, the church grew as a result. It's funny, in some ways, that martyrdom seems to have the opposite effect of what's intended. They're trying to squash the message of the gospel. They're trying to kill the church, kill Christians. But what ends up happening throughout history, as more people are murdered, the church continues to spread and grow. It's almost as if one of the reasons, maybe people observe what's happening and they get a little curious. What's going on here? That person was willing to give up their life for what they believe. Well, what did they believe? And they end up hearing what they believe. And then they end up believing it. And God uses that, just like God used Stephen. But I want to be clear. Not every single person who follows Jesus is called to be martyred. It's not like a command. You, you must die for your faith if you're going to be a Christian. Jesus doesn't say everybody will do that. But he did say that some will. And even if we're not called to be martyred for our faith, we all, we all every single one of us, called to live a life full of faith. I mean, we just sung this morning. We started this morning saying, God, great is your faithfulness. You're faithful. You're good. Man, you keep your promises. It's because of that that I trust you. I depend on you because you've proven yourself. So, man, like, I'll surrender my life to you. What else am I going to do? I'm going to live full of faith in you. But even if we are called to physically die and give up our life for Jesus, we have sure promises. We have promises that, that propel us beyond the fear of death. Jesus told us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And you go, wait a minute. So, so this life isn't all that there is. So that means physically dying here isn't the end. Well, if that isn't the end, then that removes some of the fear of death. And then when Jesus rose again, he's like, hey, guess what? I conquered death. Death really isn't the end anymore. You trust in me. Though you may die, you will live. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 55 talks about when Jesus returns, that, that we're going to get this new, resurrected, glorified, kind of like Jesus-like body that, that will never be able to die again. What we have now is mortal. It's perishable. But we're going to get this imperishable body. It's like, man, if that is true, which I believe it's true, it's in the Bible, then that gives us a whole lot of faith to stand against any kind of opposition. Because then ultimately, we have that promise to cling to, then we can say along with Hebrews 13.6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Why? What can man do to me? Well, ultimately, what, what can a person do to me? They can take my life, as horrible as that is. If I trust in Jesus, all that does is brings me to Jesus. So what can man do to me? That's why we're able to say, okay, I will not fear. I will not fear. I'll be full of faith. And we ask, God, would you make us full of faith? Me. Like, hey, I'm up here and I'm saying, this morning, I'm, I'm just like, am I that full of faith? Lord, change me. Make me full of faith. Make us full of faith. Replace our doubts and our fears with confident trust in you. You know, it's like 
Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's, that's where I'm at. It's like, oh, give us more faith. Make us full of faith. And then Stephen is not only full of faith, but Acts 5 or 6, 5 says he's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was radically changed by the Spirit of God in his life. The Spirit of God not only gave him the boldness to, to speak and, and the words of wisdom, but it changed him. It shaped him into a different kind of person, a person that was more and more like Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit does. When we believe in Jesus, the Scripture teaches us anybody who, who genuinely puts their trust in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit in their life to dwell within them. And then He begins to work in them, changing us bit by bit, shaping us to be more and more like Jesus. And Scripture tells us, be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, we sang a little bit about this. Part of it, I think, is, is to surrender. Offer ourselves in complete surrender. What should I do? Offer my heart completely to you. Surrender our sins. Surrender our old life, our entire being to God. And say, I'm done with running things. I want you to run things. I want you to be in control. You work in me. But I think it's, it also relates to influence. Influence and control. If somebody is full of alcohol, like full of alcohol, they are under the influence of alcohol. They are under the control of alcohol. They lack self-control, right? In the same way, Scripture says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In the same way, if you're full of the Spirit, you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He is shaping and directing your life. You're under more control of Him, and He's directing you towards holiness, Holy Spirit, holiness, growth in your faith. And Galatians 5.22 gives us this great summary of the kinds of things that begin to happen in our lives, when we are filled with the Spirit, when we are walking by the Spirit, it says the fruit of the Spirit or the evidences of the Spirit in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How great would it be if, if those qualities defined our lives, defined our church? But again, I... I I look at myself and I say, how often do I wake up and say, God, fill me with your spirit today? So often I pray for lots of other things. But when do I say, make me full of your spirit and change me today? Man, if we would call out to God, cry out to God, fill us with your spirit. Change us. Stephen was full of the spirit and he was used mightily by God. And then the third thing that we see of, of Stephen, it says in Acts 6, 8, was that he was full of grace. This is an uncommon phrase in Scripture. It's very rare. Usually in Scripture mentions grace, it's referring to God and His character and Him showing us divine favor, treating people better than they deserve. We're sinful, we're rebels, we, we, we've, um, we've sinned against Him, and yet in His grace, right? we talk about being saved by grace, in His grace, He offers us salvation, forgiveness. He sent His Son as a, as a gift for us. So that's kind of how we normally think of grace. Uh, we can't work for it. We can't earn it. We simply trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But this phrase is, is different. How is Stephen full of grace? It reminds me of how people described uh, actress Audrey Hepburn. Apparently, those who knew her said she was the epitome of grace. 
She was graceful. That the, she had some elegance about her, a charm, a wit that made her delightful to be around. Okay, maybe that's something like that. Or I think about ballet dancers, graceful, or, or figure skaters, full of grace on the ice, spinning, twirling, jumping, all that kind of stuff. They go, is that it? That's what I think of, full of grace. Acts 6, 8, Stephen was full of grace. Maybe, you know, it's possible that Stephen had some kind of charm, some kind of winsome quality about him that made him uh, delightfully persuasive in his conversations, as one person has put it, so that he performed these miracles, but then he was um, full of grace in his conversation and, and his person that that made people want to continue to be around him rather than him being a jerk and kind of abrasive. Maybe that's what it means, full of grace that way. Possible. I think Acts 7, verse 60 helps us out here in showing what it means to be full of grace. Right when Stephen is about to die, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Full of grace, willing to forgive. So the question comes for us. When we experience any level of, of hardship, opposition, even persecution, we don't often experience real persecution here in Canada, but that could come soon. But whatever kind of opposition we face, whether it's at work, school, neighborhood, family, friends, whatever, do we desire that those people would be forgiven for what they're doing to us? Do we genuinely desire that good things would happen to those people? Are we extending favor towards them? treating them better than they deserve, just like God treats us better than we deserve? Do we want them to hear the truth about Jesus and also believe it? Or are we just like personal vengeance mode? You know, what'd you do to me? I'm going to do, mm, you're going to get it. Or what'd you do to my kid? Well, now you're really going to get it. Or what'd you say about my mama? Now you're really going to get it. Is that what we do? Full of grace. I think it means... That like Stephen, by God's power, we're not bitter people. We're not people that seek personal vengeance. We're not abrasive with others. But we extend grace. We extend second chances, third chances, 50th chances. So the question again, do we make allowances for people's flaws and faults? Or are we quick to jump on them? God's treated us way better than we deserve to be treated. Being full of grace, I think, means, at least in part, treating other people in the same way. Now, the final description that we have of Stephen that we're looking at this morning is that he was full of power. Acts 6.8 said he was full of grace and power. He was doing signs and wonders among the people. And before we get too carried away with this idea, I think it's really important for us to understand that this is a direct fulfillment of Acts 1, verse 8, which has been a theme throughout the book of Acts. When Jesus told him just before he left, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. But then right after that, he says, and you'll be my witnesses. Right? So, I think it's important for us to understand, before we get carried away, be like, oh man, Stephen did miracles and stuff like that. I don't do miracles and stuff like that too often. What's going on? Yeah, he was able to perform miracles and God gave him that ability. But the primary reason that we see in the book of Acts for people to receive power from God is actually to stand and be witnesses for Jesus. 
Because if you notice, he was put on trial not for miracles. He was put on trial for what he was teaching, what he was saying. And he was ultimately killed because of being a witness for Jesus. Not because he did a cool miracle. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 mentions that healing and, and miracles are, are some of the spiritual gifts that, that God gives to his people in the church. But not everybody gets them. Not everybody has those gifts. But every single Christian can experience the power of God in their life. 2 Peter 1, 3. It says, His, God's, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. God's power is available for each one of us. We've been granted this resource for everything that we need. God graciously provides you and me with the strength that we need to face each day and to be a witness for Him. How encouraging is that to know that you don't have to try to conjure that up on your own. You don't have to rely on your power, your strength to face whatever's going to happen today, let alone what might happen tomorrow. No, God's power is available to us. Now, to be clear, this power isn't always displayed in spectacular ways like Stephen did. Sometimes it might. But again, what he's trying to say, what we're trying to say this morning is God's power most of the time is going to be relating to giving us the ability to be a witness for Jesus, to be bold and even in the face of opposition. Power, God's power in our life, power to recognize temptation and sin and to, to run from it and say no. Power from God. Power to forgive those people who have hurt us. Power to overcome the, the just constant pressures of the world. Power to understand and apply this book, to be able to read it, make sense of it, and, and actually do it. God gives us the power to do that. And then, and then power, like Stephen, to speak the truth boldly, yet with gentleness and respect, as we're called to. How about this one? Power to patiently listen to the problems that your son or daughter has after the end of a long, exhausting work week. It's Friday, and it's like, oh, man, I'm finally done work. And then here it comes. Well, guess what? This happened to me at school. And it's just like, ah, I don't want to deal with this. God, power. I need power. It happens. Power to choose joy in the midst of trials. Power to love our enemies. Power to love our neighbors. Power to love our own families. Sometimes we're like, yeah, we've got to love our enemies. And sometimes we can forget, oh, we're supposed to love our families. Sometimes our families take the brunt of us. We can be nicer to our neighbors than we are to our family. Love everyone. Love our neighbors, absolutely. Love our enemies. But don't forget to love your family and your friends. Power to stand for Jesus in the face of opposition. Power to worship when your life feels like it's completely falling apart and you're totally overwhelmed. And remember, all this power comes from God. He's the one that grants the power to give ordinary people like you and I the ability to stand, the ability to face these things, just like, Pete, just like Stephen. So I wonder if you would close your eyes for a moment. We could just imagine. Sometimes we don't imagine. Take time to imagine and close our eyes again. Like I said earlier, can you imagine if this described your life? Imagine your life full of faith, full of
full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. Can you imagine that for a second? Can you imagine what God could do with ordinary people like us who are fully surrendered themselves to an extraordinary God, fully devoted themselves to the mission of God? Can you imagine our church being known for these things? Those people are full of faith, man. They have so much faith. The Holy Spirit's doing something over there. They're full of grace. There's, there's powerful stuff happening. Can you imagine the eternal impact that could happen in our city? If we were marked by these things, can you imagine that? Let's pray for that. Father God, we come before you this morning in humility, recognizing that you are the one that grants power. You are the one that gives us faith. You're the one that that fills us with the Holy Spirit. You're the one who changes us to be full of grace. And Father, I just want to say, would you forgive us for the times where we fill our lives with so many other things? Where we're under the influence of so many other things. And would you please be gracious to us, individually and as a church, would you fill us in a fresh way today with your Holy Spirit so that we could replace fear with faith, that we could truly hold on to your word and stand for you and say, I don't have to be afraid of people because I know that God is on my side, that I'm on His side, that He loves me, that He's promised to take care of me, to never let me go, and He's promised that I would be with Him forever through Jesus Christ. Would you grant us Your grace? Change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.